0: Jude, the book of Jude, if you've been with us the past few weeks, obviously, you know, we've been in Daniel. We're taking a little hiatus, a little summer break, you could say, from Daniel. These next four weeks, uh, as we are together, and uh, I'll be here, uh, we will be walking through the short book of Jude. Uh, The short book of Jude, it's the last uh, little letter before the book of Revelation. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, it is page 1028, so you know you're getting to the end when you're in the 1000s there, Uh, page 1028, um, excuse me, 1027, 1027 in the Pew Bible. If you're visiting with us and you do not have a copy of God's Word, and uh, you would like one, that Bible in the Pew there is our gift to you. So if you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of God's Word, please feel free to take that and read that and use that. And uh, we'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your own possession. We're going to be looking at this little letter to Jude, or written by Jude, these 25 verses over the next four weeks or so. And uh, looking forward to hearing what Jude has for us. But as we uh, come this morning, let us pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him we have forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we were your enemies We were far from you, and we deserved punishment because of our sin. But yet you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, that we could be brought close into a relationship with you, or that we could have forgiveness of our sins. And now, Lord, as we seek to know Christ and to live out that faith, Lord, I pray that you would use your word and your Holy Spirit in our lives, to make us more like Jesus. Lord, each day, through the good times, through the hard times, through the ups and downs, Lord, that you're molding and shaping. You are are showing areas in our lives that we must put off. Our thinking must be renewed and how we must put on Christlikeness. Lord, help us do that as we live our lives for Christ. For those here who may not know Christ, Lord, I pray that you would use your word and your spirit this morning to show them their sin, Show them that their salvation in Christ and in Him alone, and that today that they would put their trust in Him for their salvation. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. If you found your way to the letter of Jude, I'm going to read our passage this morning. It's Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This letter of Jude is brief. It's 25 verses. And forgive me if I refer to Jude, chapter whatever verse we're in, because that's how I'm used to speaking, of course, in a in a letter here. But Jude writes to a body of believers, to a group, the beloved, whether it's a specific church in mind or a group of churches or believers, we're not necessarily sure but he writes, and he writes that they need to contend for the faith. They need to fight for a cause. And we all love that idea, I think, deep down, right? We love the idea of fighting for a cause. Maybe those who are overlooked, those who are underprivileged, a a cause that is, is neglected, one that we feel very strongly about. We love fighting, promoting a cause, being the the agent that can bring change through this effort, right? Agonizing for something that is worth it, that is worth the cost. Some things that people fight for really aren't that important. (laughs) Some things that people fight for are of, of the utmost importance. Some causes throughout the ages have literally changed the course of history that people have agonized and contended for. In two days, we're going to celebrate the 4th of July. That was a cause that changed the course of history. July 4th, 1776, the date in which the Declaration of Independence was signed in that hot summer in Philadelphia, the Constitutional or Congre- Congressional Congress, they signed the Declaration of Independence, declaring the freedom of the 13 colonies from British authority. These men from different walks of life coming together as representatives of their states, these colonies, to declare that they would no longer submit to the unjust rule and tyranny of King George. Now it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to follow it up. They knew that as they signed that document, as they signed it with their names, and as it was sent several weeks and months to Great Britain, that it would come at great cost. But I love the last phrase. It's actually the last sentence of the Declaration of Independence. I encourage you to maybe read that in the next few days. The whole Declaration of Independence. Nobody, nobody writes like that anymore. But I love this last phrase. This idea of contending for the cause, of being willing to give their all. These signers finished the statement with this sentence. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They knew that by signing this document, that they were... Truly pledging to each other and to the cause their lives, their fortune, all that they had, and their ultimate sacred honor before the Lord. And I'm thankful for those men who stood for that and God's providence and His sovereignty in bringing about the American Revolution and the freedoms that we enjoy today. And through God's sovereign grace, they're contending for this cause of independence change the course of the world and the course of our lives today. We can give thanks to God for that. But they understood the cost of what it would take. I wonder if you and I today perhaps don't fully comprehend the cost that it takes to follow after Jesus to contend for the faith. For that is what Jude calls these believers in his letter to, and it's the application for us today. Our big idea this morning from Jude 1-4 through is this, that contending for the faith is needed in a world full of falsehoods. Contending for the faith is needed, it's necessary, in a world full of falsehoods. The world is full of all kinds of ideas, all ways of religion and thinking and philosophy, some good, some not so good, and some downright evil. There are views of the world that say it's okay to kill a child in the womb of its mother. There are views in the world today that say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you agree with me. There are views in the world today that say, you can believe in whatever you want as long as it doesn't offend anyone else. The views that are backwards and inside out that are contrary to one another, all these different views, and they're fighting. That's this noise, this cacophony in our ears of saying, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, and we must think, what is truth? Who is true? Where do we go for truth? Well, we know the ultimate truth is found in God the sovereign creator of the world who has created everything and in his creation has created you and I and has revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible, and through his son, Jesus Christ. And we know and understand that that's the true source of truth. The faith that is once and all delivered to the saints. We must contend for it. So let's look here and why contending for the faith is necessary in our lives. First of all, we contend for the faith because of who we are serving, because of who we are serving, and we are serving Jesus. Jude is written, as I said, 25 verses. It's a very short, short letter, but it packs a punch. He doesn't mince any words, and, and it's, a, it's a call to action. And he writes to this group of believers and he wants to write to them about their common salvation about the gospel the the enjoyable things in a sense about their faith but he found it necessary to write concerning something else and so he begins his letter by introducing himself we contend for the faith because who we are serving jesus verse one we are introduced to the author a very common introduction to a letter jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The name Jude is the Greek term uh, of the Hebrew name Judah. So you're familiar with Judah, the tribe of Judah, the person of Judah from the Old Testament. Jude or Judas is the, uh, the Greek equivalent of that name. So we might hear Judas and instantly we think of the disciple who betrayed Jesus, right? That was a common first century name. So being named Jude would not be necessarily a bad thing. don't know if you necessarily want to name your child Judas today because of connotations, but uh, Jude or Judah is the author. And he introduces himself as a servant, or the word there is doulos in the Greek. Doulos is the term for slave or bond servant. It's more than just a servant of you work for somebody. This bond servant or the idea of slave is that that person's sole occupation and desire was to serve their master. Paul uses this term several times in the New Testament as well. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. The sole purpose of Jude and of Paul and of those who use that phrase was to serve their master, Jesus. And slaves in the first century are a little bit different than our thinking from American history. Slaves or bondservants lived in homes provided by them, by their masters. They were provided clothing and food, and they were often paid as well uh, above those other things. And they often did business on behalf of their master. Having a quality bondservant or slave was huge in the first century. Somebody you could trust, and it could be a position of relative authority in the house to be that chief slave or bondservant. Jude identifies himself, first and foremost, as a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. He's identifying from the beginning who he is serving. He's serving Jesus. And he also identifies someone else. He says, brother of James. So Jude is the brother of James. Now, which James? There could be a couple options. There's James, the disciple, James and John, uh, uh, James, uh, a son of Alphaeus there, Uh, It could be uh, just another James, but more than likely, this James is the James from Acts 15. If you remember in the book of Acts, James in Acts 15 is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. That James is also the writer of the book of James in the New Testament. And that James is also the brother of Jesus, which would make Jude another brother of Jesus, a half-brother of Jesus. So while some may speculate other things, the orthodox Christian understanding for the past several thousand years is that Jude is the brother of James, the brother of Jesus. Jude identifies himself as a slave of Jesus and a brother of a fellow servant. And he writes to those who are called, those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And he uses this phrase, called, those who are called out, those who are chosen by God. He is reminding his readers that God is the one who has called them, who has drawn them to himself, who has saved them. They have not saved themselves, but rather they belong to God. And they are beloved, beloved in God the Father. They are recipients of the love of God. As he calls them, he loves them, and he is kept, the ESV says, for, there's also a footnote here, that says by, I believe by is a better translation, who are kept by Jesus Christ. God calls them, draws them to himself, receives, they they receive the love of the Father through Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ keeps them. And that's an important idea. It's going to be repeated uh, in verse 1 and also at the very end in verses 24 and 25. Being kept, being safe, enduring and persevering to the end. Jude reminds them that they are called by God, beloved in him, and they are kept by Jesus. This is a great reminder for us as believers in Jesus Christ that through our own power, we are not kept in our salvation. We do not have to continue you know, striving to earn our salvation, or there's, if we've truly trusted in Jesus Christ, we may fall and we still sin, but yet we aren't going to lose that salvation because we are kept in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And throughout the whole chapter of Romans 8, Paul lays out the truth that those who are called and who are who are saved and who are sanctified they will ultimately be kept till the end when God ultimately glorifies us. Those who are truly in Jesus Christ. Jude is setting the stage reminding them who we are serving. He's reminding them of their identity. And then he prays that they would receive mercy and peace and love being multiplied to you. These ideas of mercy and peace and love are often repeated in different ways in the New Testament, but they are the things that we receive as believers in Jesus Christ, as his followers. Mercy, right? Mercy, not getting something that we do deserve. If we got what we deserved, we'd all be burning in hell right now. Every single one of us. But through God's mercy, we are spared. Through God's mercy, he gives opportunity to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. We have peace, right? We have the peace that passes all understanding. The end of Philippians says, guards our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God, Romans 5. We have peace and we have love. For God so loved the world, John says, that he gave his only son. This love is demonstrated to us in Jesus. Mercy and peace and love we have received, and we are continued to receive that, that it would be multiplied to us, Jude writes. Through these first two verses, Jude reminds his readers who they are and who they are serving. They are slaves, servants of him who has called them. They have not earned their salvation, but they have received it as a gift because God has called them, and they have received the love that is found in God the Father, and they're being kept by Jesus Christ. His readers are the recipients of all these things. It's nothing that they do. There's no activity in verses 1 and 2 that demonstrates what they have done. They have been called. They have received. They are being kept. They are being reminded of their identity, of who they are, who they are, and who you are is important. I think it's interesting, the idea of identity. Now with smartphones and technology, your face is really important. The other day, I was trying to do something on Carrie's phone to help her, and It didn't recognize my face, so what did I do? I just turned it to her. She looked at it, and I, okay, kept going. (laughs) Who you are matters. Who you are matters. Your identity matters. Why? Because your identity determines your motivation, your direction of where you're headed and what you're doing. We can choose to identify ourselves in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of foolishness in the world right now about identifying yourself however you want. There are certain ways that we can identify ourselves that are the truth no matter what. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, our greatest identity, who we are, what we do, is that we are found in Christ. That we are a follower of Him. That we are united in Christ. Those in Christ, those accepted in the Beloved, those who have received forgiveness of their sins and have been redeemed. The truest identity as a believer in Jesus Christ is that we are in Christ. And that changes our entire lives. It changes why we live, how we live, for who we live, for whom we live. We live not for ourselves, but we live for Jesus. What does Jesus say in the gospels? to the disciples, about what it means to follow after him, that you would deny yourselves, you would deny your identity, your motives, that you would take up your cross, that you would identify with Jesus and follow after him. As a believer in Jesus Christ, life is not about you, but it's about the one you're serving, the one who has redeemed you, who has saved you. Your identity is that you are in Christ. And that is a whole myriad of, of benefits and blessings. We have an inheritance. We have forgiveness of our sins. We have a peace that passes all understanding. We have an eternity, an eternal home with God. We have all these wonderful, wonderful blessings. Who you are and your identity matters. And this emboldens us, and braces us for what we will face. One's identity makes a huge impact in how we live. And you and I are faced... Today with the same question, the same truth, who are we? Who do we identify with? What's the point of my life? Our ultimate identity is in Christ. That's who you are. And that changes everything about how you live. It changes about how you go to your job and how you work and how you interact with other people. And your identity in Christ is a wonderful display and demonstration of the gospel at work. And as we have a gathering of believers united in Jesus Christ. We see how we can live for him and his glory. And this identity changes how we live out our lives in contrast to those who don't or who are not in Christ. So we contend for the faith. We contend in the face of falsehoods because of who we are serving because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the embodiment of truth and we are called to follow and to serve him. And secondly, we contend because of the importance of the message, which is the gospel. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Jude refers to them as beloved. It's interesting. In verse 1, they are beloved in God. They, they are loved in God. That They are recipients of that love. And now he's using that same term as a, as a, as a name, beloved, you who are loved in Christ. He's, he's reminding them. He says, I was very eager. He desired to write to them about their common salvation, about the good news of Jesus Christ and about the joys of following after Christ. It was going to be a much more uh, lighter letter, you could say, as far as the content. It would be pleasing and enjoyable. It has that idea. But he found it necessary. Why? Why did he find it necessary? Where something was happening, and now he found it necessary to appeal to them, to contend for the faith. That word "contend," and this this is really the 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 big idea of the letter of Jude to contend for the faith. That word "contend" means to agonize, to strive for. It's the idea of of competing uh, in athletics or fighting in a battle. All these this this warring this competition, imagery. It's being willing to sacrifice for, contend for the faith. The faith here is the entire revealed body of understanding of who God is. It's the gospel, and it's who God is in relation to that. And this faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. It's this idea of it's been completed. It's not fluid and changing, but it's revealed and resolute. That it has been settled, contending, agonizing, fighting for the faith, for the revealed truth from God that has been delivered once for all. Why? Why should they contend? Well, verse 4 gives us the reason. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, have crept in, crept into where? More than likely into the church. Have crept into a body of believers. And this idea of crept in is sneaky, okay? It's not a, hey, I'm a false teacher. Let me come into your church. It's more of a, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you guys. And can I join and just see what's going on? So you have a sneaking in. It's like when we put our children to bed and all of a sudden you just hear a door open little footsteps. And you see just one eyeball peek around the corner, thinking that you didn't see them. And then they step around. Then they slowly move over. And we just sit there, act like we can't see them. Can I have a drink? Can I have a snack? Uh, can I have this? Can I have that? Usually it's, it's Ezra. I'm going to throw him under the bus. I'm not tired. Can I read a little bit? Right? It's the idea of trying to sneak in, of, of being unnoticed. These false teachers have crept in. They haven't been blatant in their uh, their heresy, but rather they've been very subtle. And I think it's interesting how Jude describes them. They've crept in unnoticed. They've looked like everyone else, but yet they've crept in. But he describes their situation. These people long ago were designated for this condemnation, meaning not that God has specifically you know, these certain type of people that uh, he, has, he has set them aside for destruction, but rather a false teacher is always going to receive his just deserts. A false teacher will always receive condemnation, whether in this life or the next. So he's saying, though they've crept in and they've perhaps fooled you, they will receive what's coming to them. They cannot escape the judgment of God. And then he describes them. They are condemned. They are ungodly people. Now, you and I hear that term ungodly people, and we think right away that these people live completely contrary to the word of God. Just terribly immoral and disgusting. But this term ungodly or uh, impious really has a connotation of without God. They live life without thought to God. Most ungodly people are very moral. But they live their lives without thought of God. Because they make moral decisions based upon being accepted in the community. They make moral decisions so their name isn't thrown under the bus so people still shop at their business. They live moral lives so that they could be looked upon and be known as a good person, but yet they do it for their own benefit and without thought to God. Most ungodly people in our communities are good citizens, but yet they live life without thought to God. And how often do we, do I, resort to ungodly living? Not blatant immorality and sin, but rather I make choices, decisions, have conversations without thought to God and His Word. That's what being ungodly is, living life without thought of God. And that's who these people are. They're ungodly. And we see their activity. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. I think these teachers, these people crept in, and they said that they believed in Jesus Christ and the grace that came from him, but yet they used that grace as an excuse to live however they wanted. Right? If I have forgiveness in Jesus, I have a get-out-of-jail-free card. I can live however I want why we read from Romans 6 this morning. Paul addressed that exact idea. He says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Should we sin more so we can have more of God's grace? By no means. Absolutely not. God forbid. Our salvation in Jesus Christ, though it covers all of our sin, And any sin that we will commit, and even as believers, we still continue to sin, and His grace covers it. It's not an excuse to sin. We can't continue to desire sin and use God's grace as an excuse, or as a band-aid, or as this magic potion that makes us immune from the judgment of God. That's not true salvation. That's not true understanding of the gospel. They said, believe in Jesus and live however you want. That does not compute. That's not how it works. Why? Because that demonstrates your identity truly hasn't changed. If you're still living for the things of the world and sinful desires, you're not a child of God. (laughs) Because your tastes are still for the, the fleshly, the material, the earthly things. They are not set on things above. Throughout Scripture, we see the pattern and the commands Because we have trusted in Christ, we are to live our lives in a certain way. We have gone from death to life. We are a new creation. And as a new creation, we desire higher and better things. But they were using the grace of God. They were perverting it into sensuality. And ultimately, that last phrase, they denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And those phrases are important because it reinforces the idea of identity. Jesus Christ is, As we are believers in him, he is our master. He is our Lord. We are accountable to him, and it is our job and our duty, our privilege to live our lives for him. You might know somebody who claims the name of Jesus Christ, but their life does not match up. It is completely, I think according to God's word, appropriate to ask yourself, I wonder if they're truly repentant. I wonder if they've truly trusted in Jesus Christ. Because the pattern in the New Testament is those who have trusted in Christ seek to desire to live a life of holiness. He says in 1 Peter, be holy because I am holy. Not that we're perfect, we can't be perfect. But where are our feet pointing? Are they pointing to living like Jesus Christ? We still stumble, we still fall, we still falter, but yet our our desire, our goal, our our direction is towards Christ? Or is it, yeah, I'm a Christian, but yet my feet are planted squarely in the opposite direction, and the pattern of my life demonstrates that? It's not if you will sin, but what is the response when you do sin? Do you confess it and continue on in seeking to live a Christ-like life by his grace? Or do you say, oh, it's no big deal. Jesus has forgiven me. I can continue to live however I want. The gospel says that we come in faith and repentance. Repent, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ. They are perverting the gospel. They are perverting the gospel saying, you can trust in Jesus and live however you want. No, you can't. The pattern of the New Testament is clear. Somebody who has put their trust in Jesus Christ lives a transformed life, a long, slow obedience in one direction, that has its ups and downs, but the direction is clear. We're seeking to live for Christ. And Jude says that his readers must contend, fight for the faith because of who they are serving and because of the message of the gospel. There are many, Jesus says, who will on that day stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? And he says, depart from me for I never knew you those who claim to follow after Jesus Christ, but yet they do not know, truly know him. We must contend for the truth of the gospel. That is the good news that leads to a changed life that demonstrates itself. These false teachers, these men who have crept in, in the name of Jesus, were leading people to hell. Perhaps you're here this morning and you think, well, yeah, I've, I've trusted Jesus, but yet the fruit in your life may not match that confession. Now, it could be a case of unresolved, unconfessed sin. There are patterns and seasons of sin in our lives as believers. But there also may be the fact that you have not truly trusted in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that we are to examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith. I don't want to challenge you with this this morning to make you doubt your faith, but I want to challenge you this morning so that you would think and to inspect your heart so that you are not fooled into thinking that you are saved. I would rather offend you this morning and have you trust Christ than not offend you and have you go to hell. In small towns and rural communities like ours, 90, I'd say to 95% people would say that they are Christian. yet probably the majority of them are going to hell. They may even go to church every Sunday. But yet they're basing their salvation on their works, their church attendance, the fact that they've been baptized or they participate in communion. They're a good, upstanding citizen. It's important for us to inspect our hearts that we have trusted in Jesus Christ alone, not in anything that we could do, but in his death, burial, and resurrection alone for our salvation. Let us make clear. Let us proclaim the good news of salvation. The call to follow after Christ is one of repentance and faith, but it's also one of denying self and following after him. And it's not this, okay, I've saved you, now live for me. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's a glorious, wonderful, beautiful thing that we have that we can be called children of God. Doesn't mean things are going to be perfect and easy, but yet we have an amazing opportunity and responsibility to be called his children. And in the end, it will be worth it all, as the hymn says. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. And we long for that day. And John says something about that in his letter in 1 John. He says, those who love is appearing, who look to that day, they prepare themselves now. How do they prepare themselves? They don't build bunkers. They don't stock up on things like that. But rather, they seek to live holy lives. And they seek to declare the gospel to the world around them. May we contend for the faith because of who we're serving, Jesus. The one who has died for us, who has saved us. And we contend for the faith because of the message of the gospel. It's a matter of life and death. We do not want anyone to think that they are on their way to heaven when they are on their way to hell. We want to be bold and clear and compassionate and resolute on the truth. Let us not pervert or cheapen the grace of God in Christ. Let us contend for the message of the gospel. Let us contend for the one that we are serving. In a world full of falsehoods, may we boldly proclaim the truth and love to those who need to hear it. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity that we look forward to the day when you're returning and that you will make this faith sight. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who know Christ as their savior. Lord, to help them in their fight with sin, help them to, to put sin to death. Lord, that they would continue to grow and bear fruit and be patient. Lord, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long, hard path, but it is good. But there was here this morning who may not know Christ, who may be deceived. Lord, I pray that your spirit and your word would work in their hearts to reveal their need for truly trusting in Jesus. Lord, please don't cause any unnecessarily doubt or agony, but Lord, help us to each question our own heart. And may we find resolute the truth of Jesus Christ in your word that we can trust and rely upon, the solid walk on which we can stand. And may we live for your honor and your glory. Lord, we love you. We give thanks for all these things in your son's name. Amen. I invite you to stand. We're gonna do something since we're all together here this morning. We're gonna sing the third verse of